0: Upon hearing that our neighbor was in trouble, I crossed the river, leading my army under the stars. Our wise emperor is anxious for the news every day, and I humbly do my duty, avoiding even wine at night. The spring weather and the great bear make me lion-hearted. The bones of the lying Japanese will ache with fear. Let me speak of nothing but victory, even in jokes. I am always on a horse, even in my dreams themselves. Untitled poem by General Lee Rusong, Chinese commander and conqueror of half of Korea. One is reminded of Kikagar, purity is pursuing one thing above all others, and so at his table, in his talk, and even in his dreams themselves, General Lee pursued only one thing, the liberation of Korea. And how many times have you heard purity doesn't matter? And how many professors have told you anarchic pleasure and self-fulfillment are the end goals of all mankind? What presumption? Who gave them the authority to define goals for mankind in the first place? No, for some of us, those of us like Lee, purity, not self-fulfillment, are the ultimate goals we set for ourselves. We don't need the weak-armed professors of Yale to set our goals for us. Anyways, welcome to BattleCast. I'm Dr. Luke Wolf and I appreciate you coming along for our third show in this ongoing series on the Gen War. In today's show, the already burned over country of Korea is going to be burned over one more time. Yet again, countless little villages and large cities will be destroyed as China throws her lot in with the Koreans and seeks to drive the Japanese back into the sea where they came from. Today's show is the story of that momentous drive. Hundreds of thousands will die. Millions more will weep wandering homeless every sound sending teenage korean girls running desperate to avoid the slave catchers a population exposed like a man before the great white throne of the lord there is no escape All our sins played out back in technicolor. Our darkest secrets brought out and paraded before the host of heaven itself. Half of Korea was under the terrible judgment of the samurai. There is no analogy I can conceive to describe the suffering, the fear, the perfect antonym of peace. The Jin War. But first, I have to thank Jim from Redding, California, and Bob from Parts Unknown for buying us around. Jim, I'm looking into the battle you requested, and I've got some great resources coming from Minnesota just for you, but I want you and the half a dozen people who write in requesting battles to know that I do keep a running list of battles and wars people request, and I always use it to choose the battles we cover, so keep those requests coming in and Bob I really appreciated the kind message you sent me it's people like you that keep this show going finally I've got to thank longtime supporter Mark from Birmingham for buying us around and if you want to buy us around head over to the battlecast.com and hit that make a donation button but that's enough of the business right now I want to give a shout out to Nick from True Crime Garage so gather around grab a chair and grab a beer let's talk some true war of the Japanese invasion, the Koreans desperately sought to avoid asking China for help. The reason for their hesitance was the obvious one. If China brought tens of thousands of warriors to drive out the Japanese, there was no guarantee the Chinese would leave once the Japanese were gone. It's a classic dilemma of small states who are politically or militarily engaged with great powers. I'm reminded of the case of Finland during the Second World War. Even after the Korean capital Seoul fell, the king of Korea was still hesitating to ask the Chinese for assistance until his war minister pointed out that assistance from China was the only way Korea would even survive as a people. Besides, the minister noted, the Chinese might leave, but the Japanese certainly would not. And so we see in stark terms the real choice for weak nations everywhere. They can choose their sovereign, but after that their freedom of action is limited g john eikenberry admits as much in his book liberal leviathan such as the real way the world works and always has worked and so to pick up where we left off last month three thousand chinese troops crossed the north korean border in the summer of 1592 the chinese were told there were no japanese in the immediate border area but this assertion was due to a serious lack of intelligence There was a strong Japanese garrison at Pyongyang. The new samurai overlords had organized giant battalions of Korean slaves in order to build massive earthen fortifications as a supplement and enhancement of the walls of Pyongyang. Thousands of these anonymous little people, nameless and unknown, dug in and built for their own enemy while frowning samurai looked on. The Chinese commander foolishly decided to brutally assault the Japanese fortifications in human wave frontal attacks. It was just what the Japanese wanted. They had cleared the key lines of assault and were waiting with their superior firearms to mow down the human river of Chinese launched against their earthen redoubts. On August 23rd, the Ming commander unleashed his forces on Pyongyang. The Chinese attacked the incomplete earthwork so suddenly the Japanese did not even have time to put on their armor. They gathered what weapons they could and hastily formed a line to drive back the screaming tsunami of humanity. High-ranking Japanese officers personally fought on the front line, receiving many arrows through their arms and legs for their troubles. The ocean ever seeks to penetrate the hull of a ship. Any chink in the vessel's metal skin sends water careening in, unleveling and weighing down the leaning boat, sending more water rushing over the formerly stable and safe rails. Just so, the Chinese flooded into Pyongyang, first through one gap and then through more and more. But the Japanese commander was no fool. General Shingonobu squinted his eyes and gave a slight chuckle to himself as he suddenly realized his own men outnumbered the Chinese. Let them in! The samurai laconically ordered his officers. But Master Shigenobu, they'll overwhelm us. Let them in, was General Shigenobu's harsh reply. Shigenobu's introverted face smiled when he saw the Chinese flooding into the alleys and narrow streets of Pyongyang. Fire teams to the east and west wall! He barked and his bowing men tripped over themselves to obey his order. The Japanese fire teams, lines of men like soldiers in Civil War films, turned to face the Chinese who were packed like sardines in the narrow streets. Now the Japanese soldiers suddenly understood their general's plan. Their eyes wide, their minds clicking with understanding, and their knuckles white as they gripped and petted the brown four-stalks of their firearms. In the streets, the Chinese were elated. We've taken the city! They screamed to one another. The city is... All along the walls, the Japanese fire teams fired down into the mosh pit of Chinese humanity teeming in the Pyongyang alleys like bleeding fish in an evangelical cartoon of Jesus filling the nets of his disciples. The Chinese officers were the first to realize their desperate situation. It was a trap. They hadn't captured the city. The city was capturing them. Retreat! The few surviving officers called to their men. Fall back! The men's eyes were wild. Their faces flecked with the blood of their own comrades. The retreat was turning into a disorganized rout. Every man for themselves. That's when the Chinese soldiers saw it. The gates. The gates were open. They could get out. They could escape the rat trap. Imagine a video of a tidal wave slowly rewinding. The crashing wave turns back in on itself, the cascading droplets reforming like the T-1000 in the film Terminator 2. Finally, the wave retreats back into the ocean. In just the same manner, the Chinese waved out of the open gate and irreversibly flowed back from where they had come from. The retreat was going fine until they heard it. The samurai cavalrymen circled the panicking Chinese and began cutting the disorganized men down like it was just another practice session for the battle-hardened samurai. Spear and curved steel, sliced into Ming backs and flailing arms. A clock sends its arms, flying unopposed across its numbers. First the minute hand, and then the hour hand, in just the same way the death-dealing horse-mounted samurai crossed over the Chinese compass. First one time, and then yet another, from noon to midnight. By the end of the day, there were few left. It was a total Japanese victory. The Japanese fighting men were elated by their victory. To them, the defeat of the 3,000-strong expeditionary force was the first step in the eventual conquest of China. But the Japanese commanders knew better. China is a big place, and Japan's leadership knew tens of thousands of Chinese would soon be coming south to Korea to share their cultural heritage with the Japanese. And so they did what they could to prepare for the coming onslaught. They consolidated their positions and constructed Japanese-style fortifications at key areas. Their idea was to create a defense in depth that would soak up the Chinese attackers the way southern biscuits mop up gravy. Soon the onslaught would come. But first, the Japanese, smashed into tight quarters at Pyongyang, suffered one of their first defeats on land from mankind's most powerful enemy, Sickness. Disease cut through the ranks of the Japanese garrison at Pyongyang. One eyewitness describes the plague like this Some got sick in their bodies, some others developed Rossi, which is tuberculosis. Every day our troops became thinner. Someone suffering the misery of these illnesses received rice, salt, and sake as food for the throat, and after a while chestnuts and millet. Even the horses were unwell from the sickness. No matter which yo they served, the men grew weak and had a dark skin. If they couldn't drink sake, there was nothing with which to comfort their spirits. End quote. And what effects do you think these conditions had on the morale of the men cooped up and bored while sickness hunted them the way pest controllers seek out mice sooner or later they get them? Japan's dream of an East Asian empire was coming apart at the seams. Her soldiers were literally dripping with disease, their noses constantly streaming snot, their lungs wheezing and chuffing like steam engines that always could. At the end of the winter of 1593, General Li Rusong and 43,000 Chinese troops crossed the frozen Yalu River and entered into Korean territory. Lee's entry was virtually unopposed. He had one thing on his mind, a town called Pyongyang. On February 5th, he camped outside Pyongyang's earthen defenses. As he surveyed the fortress surrounding Pyongyang, Lee noticed a steep hill rising arbitrarily from the flat ground surrounding the rest of the region. This hill, called Moranbong, was itself surrounded by a wall. If you look at pictures of the hill, it's almost like a small mountain. It looks like Stone Mountain in Atlanta, Georgia, which itself seems completely out of place compared with the flat land around it. Some of the bloodiest fighting would take place on Moribong Hill, which is a big hill. Think of it more like a very small mountain. Even though it was technically outside of Pyongyang proper, It was so close to the city walls that it nevertheless formed a key part of the defenses. Now, the walls of Pyongyang looked very much like a right triangle, and about half of the walls were even protected by two rivers, which acted like a moat for the Japanese defenders. If you look at it on a map, the two legs of the triangle are east and south, while the hypotenuse is facing west. And for you guys who don't remember what a hypotenuse is, it's the long side of a right triangle that runs diagonally. In addition, there were four gates to the city, and each gate was garrisoned with 2,000 Japanese troops. In addition, the hill I told you about named Morambong, has 2,000 Japanese defenders as well. The Japanese commander, Konishi Yukonaga, kept about 13,000 men in the center of the city as a reserve to be moved where they were most needed. So for you guys who are keeping count, the Japanese have about twenty-three to 25,000 very sick men who are facing... 43,000 fresh Chinese troops along with about 10,000 regular Korean troops and about 4,000 Korean warrior monks who we met in last month's show. Consequently, the Japanese were outnumbered a little over 2 to 1. I should point out that these numbers are all estimates based on numerous different sources. And Lee didn't wait around. He attacked Pyongyang the day after he arrived, February 6th. His plan was simple. He would attack every gate at once, sending groups of 10,000 Chinese against three gates while throwing 10,000 Koreans at the fourth. Before the main attack, the 4,000 warrior monks, who Lee greatly respected as warriors, would crowbar the 2,000-strong samurai out of the Morabong Hill. It was a good plan if Lee really could attack every gate at once. Not an easy thing to do even today with modern technology. It was the monks who went into battle first, thousands of them, trained to look at death like an old long-for lover. They formed up at the foot of the Morabong slopes. The monks were led by Hyung Jong, the man who had first called up the Buddhist monks to resist the Japanese in the first place. Close your eyes and imagine thousands of them in their distinctive light blue robes which resembled gi outfits worn by participants in American Karate tournaments. The monks carried few banners with them, just a yellow triangle here and there, on a pole streaming in a gurgling river of Montana sky-blue uniforms and six-foot-long spears. Thousands of spearheads caught and played with the sun as the monks' lava flowed up the steep hill. Soon, they were in range, and the Japanese commander bellowed one word, FIRE! Two thousand primitive firearms belched lead balls into the monks who gladly gave their lives up for Buddha and Korea. Still the human river flowed on up the sheer mountain walls rolling over the wounded, swallowing them like they had never even been there. The top of the hill was a black cloud of smoke. It takes a long time to reload the antiquated firearms the Japanese were using and the monks knew it. They redoubled their efforts after the first volleys, scrambling and tripping in excitement to crest Morabong Hill and let the Japanese meet their steel in hand-to-hand combat. Where there was no advantage to the enemy, where the Japanese and Koreans were on even ground, both figuratively and literally, hundreds of monks fell. Their chests, their foreheads, their stomachs suddenly imploding with a sickening wet sound as a projectile smashed into their permeable skin. Then the blood tissue and bone fragments began to mushroom out of the wound as the men dropped and rolled beneath the legs of their co-religionists. Some men were trampled to death as the unstoppable wave of monks bubbled up the hill. The Japanese reloaded and unleashed another volley. This time whole sections of the Korean wave seemed to stop flowing while still other areas pressed on. the. Part of an ocean collides with a seawall, while a mile away, the ocean waves flow unimpeded onto the sandy beach, fingering the shore with its frothy comb. Just so, parts of the monk army stopped while other sections continued on. Finally, after hours of fighting and hundreds of casualties, a few monks engaged the samurai in hand to hand combat. They fought each other in a wholly human way. There was something essential to humanity in their struggle. What do I mean? A wolf will attack a gazelle, but it's not personal. The wolf is hungry and wants to eat, but if the gazelle gets away, the wolf will give up. But man when he really hates will pursue even unto death preferring to irrationally die if it means he has a chance to annihilate his enemy. This is a key difference between men and animals. Men will fight for more than just food or survival they will go beyond nature in order to attack the objects of their hatred. Sort of like the way a stalker fixates on and pursues a certain woman. Go and tell the philosophers there is so much more than mere reason that separates us from the animals. There's also a There is love and yes, there is dogged hatred. It was this hatred that was unleashed at the summit of Morabong Hill. The men fought each other in a way that would never have been dreamed of at Gettysburg and Petersburg. Hatred drove them on, and the Japanese held their own. Three times a Korean wave penetrated the summit, and three times the samurai deconstructed the attacks, just as easily as Marcuse and Adorno pulled down the foundations of the societies all around them. Then, at the end of February 6, while the Japanese were busy holding back the Korean monks, a second Chinese force, numbering thousands, their bodies fresh and rested, attacked from the western slope of the hill. A muscled construction worker manhandles a vice to squeeze a two-by-four, which leaves its gritted marks in the wooden flesh of the board. In precisely the same way, the Chinese and Koreans worked and squeezed the Japanese on Morabong Hill. More Koreans died than Chinese, but almost all the samurai were liquidated on the hilltop. Sometimes scores of pajama-clad spear-wielding monks surrounded one samurai whose eyes constantly bounced from the encircling enemy to the uneven ground. It was like a Hong Kong kung fu film where one kung fu master fights 10 or 20 students at a rival school, but this was no film. The worn-out samurai might parry three or even four blows. He might even take one or two Koreans into the great oneness of nirvana, but spear tips sliced through his armor nonetheless. In the end, after two days and nights of continuous battle, the few hundred remaining Japanese on Morabong Hill executed a fighting withdrawal down the slopes and into the safety of Pyongyang's fortified walls. On the second day, while the battle for Morabong Hill was still taking place, General Lee flipped the switch. From two different directions, more than 35,000 Chinese and Korean soldiers attacked the four different gates of the city. Yu seong Yong remembers the initial attacks like this, quote, The Japanese set up their flowing banners, both red and white, on top of the fortress walls and tried to fight back. The Chinese soldiers used fiery arrows and cannons for their attack and their sounds were so powerful that mountains a few miles away seemed to shake. Blazing arrows cut across the air as if they were weaving a fire and thick smoke clouded the sky, choking men's lungs and blackening their faces. The fiery darts that fell into the fortress set everything on fire, burning trees and wood along with the wounded. Throughout the day and night their terrible screams reverberated across the blackened hills. Lu Shengzu and Wu Weizhong led their soldiers and scaled the walls of the fortress like ants. Even though the attackers in the front fell, the others in the back kept moving on. The spears and swords the Japanese wielded on the castle battlements looked like the needles of a porcupine. Many Japanese soldiers were cut down or burned to death. I can still hear their horrible screams. End quote. Literally thousands of Li's men were cut down by gunfire as they advanced on Pyongyang's earthen wall. Still, tens of thousands more pressed on. The next morning, General Li himself led the advance to the very gates of the city. Stephen Turnbull remembers what happened next. Eyewitnesses of the scene described how the Chinese corpses piled up so densely outside the walls that they made a ramp up which their comrades clambered. With such determination, and at such a heavy cost in casualties, each of the four landward gates was taken, and the surviving Japanese were driven back into the citadel that filled the northern tip of the triangle to provide Pyongyang's last defense. Yet even with their backs so much to the wall, the Japanese launched a fierce counterattack under So Yashitomo, determined to die only as the noble samurai of old, overwhelmed by impossible odds, end quote. One hundred years ago, European hunters used packs of Rhodesian Ridgeback dogs to hunt lions. The yowling dogs formed a circle around the lion, nipping at his nether region, drawing his attention, attacking from all sides, while the bewildered lion, a match for any of the dogs, animal to animal, Paces in an endless loop pairing first one attack from the north and then two seconds later another snapping charge from the rear. The lion's boxer like paw is a whip smashing rich back heads into the African earth. The sound of paw smacking head is sudden and pronounced as a lightning strike. But as one Ridgeback's face is impregnated into the dusty earth, two more jump on the lion's back, falling and rolling over the superior beast, like wild-eyed college football players desperate for a ticket to the National Football League, reckless in aggression. And then, after still another bite, the lion staggers, and his legs simply give out. That's when the jiving dogs, quick as temptation itself, close in on the lion their vampire-like fangs ripping chunks of tawny flesh from the worn-out creature. In just such a way... The Chinese and Korean ridgebacks surrounded and dismembered the samurai lions like Yoshitomo who stood in their way. All around the fortress, the Japanese fell back to the last inner line of defense where they had built clay walls with holes on top from which to fire on the advancing Chinese. The whole inner complex resembled a beehive. Lee, surprised by the indomitable will of the Japanese, regrouped his men at nightfall in order to reattack. The remaining Japanese in the morning, but the Japanese, realizing the situation was hopeless, decided to retreat in the darkness. The men, all of them, moved soundlessly, picking their way through the thousands of dead bodies and gasping wounded men. Surrounded, and in an impossible situation, the Japanese unbelievably just walked out of it slipping through tens of thousands of their enemies using the frozen river to escape south towards Seoul. their silence was like the hundreds of bugs living in the walls next to your head tonight silence beyond silence quiet beyond quiet one ancient japanese historian described the withdrawal this way quote there was hardly a gap between the dead bodies that filled the surrounding of the castle finally when we had repulsed the enemy they burned the food storehouses in several places, so there was now no food. On the night of the seventh day, we evacuated the castle and made our escape. Wounded men were abandoned, while those who were not wounded, but simply exhausted, crawled almost prostrate along the road. End quote. The next morning, General Lee could not believe it. The samurai had escaped. How was it even possible? And so Lee pursued his enemy like a second Grant. Meanwhile, the retreating Japanese were desperate to reach the forts that guarded the approaches to Seoul, but each time they came to a fort, they found it was already abandoned by their compatriots and they had to press on towards Seoul itself, burning the abandoned forts they had taken as they retreated southward. By this time, the Japanese were abandoning all of northern Korea above Seoul, and every fleeing Japanese gathered into Seoul the way all lines of a protractor meet in the bottom. Just so, the Japanese came streaming into Seoul to remass their force and finally halt the penetrating enemy. One eyewitness recalled the retreat like this, Because it is a cold country, there is ice and deep snow, and hands or feet are Burned by the snow, and this gives rise to frostbite, which makes them swell up. The only clothes they had were the garments worn under their armor, and even men who were normally gallant resembled scarecrows on the mountains and fields because of their fatigue, and they themselves were indistinguishable from the dead. End quote. A few brave samurai and their followers formed a screening rearguard of stop groups in order to delay the fast-advancing Chinese. The tactic worked, but few Japanese in the rearguard survived the terrible onslaught still. Because of many samurai's brave last stands, a Japanese army 50,000 strong built up in Seoul. Now there was finally a chance to turn the tide in one decisive battle. But all of a sudden... Fires started to break out all over the Japanese-held capital. It was the native Koreans. They were setting fire to the Japanese bases, destroying their food and weapons in an attempt to help their allies retake the city. The Japanese response was a second SS killing spree. Innumerable Koreans were gathered together and massacred, their homes and property destroyed in retaliation. It worked. There were no more fires in the city. Thousands were massacred in the bloody reprisals, turning Seoul into a buffet of death, where violence was as common as food is to an American. That's when a key Japanese leader named Takakagi decided the Sons of Heaven had retreated far enough. It was time to teach these inferior Chinese a lesson. Takakagi's own troops would lead the attack on the advancing Chinese. There would be no long drawn-out sieges, no hiding behind the turtle-like walls of Seoul. Not anymore. Honor itself dictated the samurai should march out and destroy the enemy. And so, Takakagi led the way. The Japanese attack took place a few dozen miles north of Seoul. The attacking samurai numbered over 40,000, while the Chinese could field just 20,000. The time was ripe for the counterstroke, and the stroke would fall at a small lodging house called Piyokie Lodging. It was the Japanese who struck first. The fog was so thick it was like walking through a storm cloud. Men had trouble even seeing the road they were standing on. At 7 a.m. the attack came. The lead elements of the Chinese were totally shocked. They had no clue the Japanese were even in the area. And the next thing they knew they were getting disemboweled by samurai swords. The Chinese broke and ran, the Japanese following at arm's length, cutting down any stragglers. A muscle cramp brought on by enjoying second helpings of potstickers often meant the death sentence for the fleeing Chinese vanguard who tripped and slipped northward back up the road. That's when the 500 attacking Japanese ran headlong into a body of 6,000 Chinese troops who promptly started massacring the outnumbered Japanese. By 10 o'clock, the Japanese vanguard retreated while the main Japanese force came up and engaged the Chinese who suddenly found themselves outnumbered. Using the fog to their advantage, the Japanese first surrounded Lee's vanguard on three sides and then simply set about squeezing. That's when Lee himself, with the remaining 13,000 Chinese troops arrived on the field he immediately ordered his main body forward to try and relieve his vanguard which was being deconstructed by the samurai but there was a problem because thousands of humans and horses had crossed the melting snow-clad road, the earthen path could basically double as quicksand. Horses struggled to stay upright in the legs-sucking mud. Their eyes were already wild, even before the Japanese started slicing roasts off them with spears and swords. Men did more tripping than walking in such conditions. That's when the Japanese attacked the scrambling men from three sides. A contemporary Chinese writer recounts what happened, quote, There seemed to be several tens of thousands of them. Swords flashed, and flags and banners seemed to cover the sky itself. The Ming soldiers saw this, and everyone's heart missed a beat. Suddenly, the Japanese soldiers brandished their swords and began a charge completely surrounding them. The soldiers who were under the commander were all northern Chinese horsemen, who had no firearms and carried short swords. The Japanese came up close. And plunged into them, killing and cutting in all directions. Both men and horses trembled with fear at having to go and face the point of these swords. Quote. A modern historian takes up the story. In the fierce hand to hand fighting, it was the relative effectiveness of the rival swords and spears that decided the issue. The razor sharp edges of the Japanese blades cut deep into the heavy coats of the Chinese, while Japanese foot soldiers tugged mountain men from the backs of their horses using the short cross blades on their spears. Quote. The fight lasted from ten AM until noon, and even the Chinese commander Lee was in the thick of the fighting because quote. The Japanese general, who wore a golden helmet, was about to capture the commander when his second-in-command covered him with his own body and received a great number of Japanese blades. But then his horse was struck by a bullet, and he fell off and died. At about this time it started to rain, and the broken ground grew more and more to resemble a swamp as men and horses trampled together in helmets, spears, and swords were scattered on the ground. Changing tactics, the Japanese commander drew back his samurai in order to allow a field of fire for his firearm squads who shot bullets into the mass of Chinese and Koreans. The Japanese then pursued the defeated enemy back up the road, and after a few more hours of fighting, the advance stopped as darkness fell. The Japanese army made its way back to Seoul, carrying 6,000 Chinese heads with them as trophies. The Battle of Pyoki was a stunning victory by an army that had previously seemed beaten, in quote. On the defeated side, the heartbroken Ming General Lee fled to Kaesong, which to give you a sense of direction is right across the current line dividing North and South Korea. So the Chinese and their Korean allies had roughly retaken almost all of modern day North Korea, but were stopped near the present border separating the two Koreas. At this time, With the threat from Lee dissipated, the Japanese turned their attention to a fortress, which threatened their power base in the area in and around Seoul. It was called Hainju, a 30,000 strong Japanese army set out to conquer the fort, which was garrisoned by about 3,000 Korean defenders who worked day and night to strengthen their outpost. On March 15th, just a few days after the overwhelming Japanese victory at Pyoki, the Japanese attacked the small fort from all directions. It should have been a walkover. It turned out to be one of the greatest military victories in Korean history. The men defending Hangju worked like ants, as if King Solomon himself were whispering instructions into their ears. By the time the Japanese attacked, they came up against troops so dug in, they were almost impermeable to ranged weapons. Consequently, the Japanese massed into packed blocks of attackers, ideal for a new Korean wonder weapon called the Fire Wagon. This strange armored wagon looked just like a primitive wooden Soviet World War II Katusha rocket system and it operated on the same lines as the Katusha rocket launchers. The new Korean artillery piece was as wide as two men and featured a shield-like wall of tubes loaded with either arrows or steel-tipped rockets. Which were fired all at once in a massive barrage of spitting death. The fire wagons made short work of the slow moving masses of samurai. The Japanese had never experienced anything like it. And thousands were blown into the next life by the fire wagons, their bodies stacked like cordwood around the walls of Hinju. When the moving wall of Japanese finally reached the sheer faces of the fort, Korean women began lobbing 40-pound rocks onto them, driving their skulls into their buttocks. Hundreds more men died in this way, literally stoned to death. The Japanese finally overlept the first line of Korean defense and pressed on to the inner keep itself, but the second Korean line held... And this time, the world-renowned aggression of the samurai worked against the men who were steeped into the Bushido Code, needlessly sending thousands of them into an early grave. Over 10,000 Japanese died on March 15th, the undefeatable warriors defeated by rock-throwing women and Korean machines of war. Many famous noblemen fell at Hainju. Nine times the Japanese attacked the inner keep of Hainju, and nine times they were beaten back. Finally, the Japanese retreated. The Koreans, outnumbered more than 10 to 1, had done it. They had stopped the Japanese in their tracks on land. They had saved half their country from the vengeful depredations of the samurai. A few men and women with backbone can save a nation. They did at Hainju. Did the Koreans at Hainju worry about numbers? Did they look out at the sea of Bushido warriors and give up? No, they did the unthinkable, and they made history while they did it, preserving and establishing the Korean cultural and national heritage in the process. As Stephen Turnbull notes, the net effect of both Hainju and Pyokye was to cancel each other out. The Japanese garrison was still threatened in Seoul. Bands of Korean insurgents roamed the countryside, eager to kill any Japanese they came across. Lawlessness was everywhere. What little property that had not been destroyed was slowly devoured by three armies. At any moment, Japanese military leaders expected the Chinese to regroup and march south again. Japanese morale was low. Eleven months before 150,000 Japanese had landed in Korea just 11 months. Now there were only 53,000 left. An island of Bushido in a sea of hostile Koreans. And it's not like the remaining third were living the dream, eating grapes in luxurious harems. Instead, they were doubled over with the plague. A modern historian explains, quote, Typhus stalked the men, and Konishi Yukonaga's 1st Division had suffered the most. From an original strength of 18,700 men, his army now consisted of 6,626 effectives, a decline in numbers of almost 65%. Death and wounds from numerous battles, sieges, frostbite, guerrilla raids, and typhoid fever had taken a huge toll, and the 2nd Division had fared little better. The chronicler noted the common soldiers who had defended Kilchu Castle to the end had suffered frostbite and snow blindness, and one or two had even been eaten by tigers while on sentry duty, end quote. And you thought your job was bad. Finally, the Japanese commanders, after considering the conditions of their men, decided to simply withdraw to the southeastern coast of Korea, the coast facing Japan. They had killed hundreds of thousands in their scorched earth drive to the border of China. Now hundreds of thousands of their own men lay unmourned and unremembered in anonymous Korean graves. A tenuous truce was reached with the Koreans, and the Japanese agreed to withdraw all their men from every Korean province except Gyeongsang Province, the coastal province closest to Japan itself. The truce basically held, and so the Japanese withdrew. Seoul was liberated on May 19th. If you can call marching into a morgue a liberation, the plague and starvation, along with the draconian Japanese reprisals, had left tens of thousands of Koreans rotting in Seoul's streets. Here's how one modern historian describes the scene the Chinese uncovered when they marched into the mortuary that had formerly been known as Seoul. Quote, Seoul was officially liberated by the Chinese army on May 19th, and their arrival revealed the horrors that the Japanese had left behind, because the starvation and typhus that had afflicted the Japanese troops had been visited tenfold upon the Korean population. The pile of dead bodies that the Chinese heaped up for cremation beside the city wall topped the ramparts. And emaciated people crawled along the streets where smoke rose from the embers of burned-out homes, workshops, and palaces because the Japanese had fired the city before they left to cover their withdrawal. Only one royal residence was still inhabitable, An quote. An eyewitness would later write this, quote, The moment I entered the castle... I counted the number of survivors among the citizens, who totaled only one out of every hundred. Yet they looked like ghosts, betraying their great sufferings from hunger and fatigue and sickness. The corpses of both men and horses were exposed under the extreme heat of the season, producing an unbearable stench which filled the streets of the city. I passed the residential districts, both public and private, only to find remnants of complete destruction." Also gone were the ancestral shrines of the royal family, the court palaces, government offices, office buildings and various schools. No trace of the old grandeur could be seen. No trace of even our trash could be seen. The stench was unbelievable. The streets were alive, bubbling with maggots. The squirming grubs literally fell out of the woodwork of the buildings. Meanwhile, in Kyongseng province on the southeastern coast of Korea, the Korean Navy continued to harass Japanese coastal forts and shipping, killing, and disrupting. By this time, the news of the defeat at Hangju had reached Hideyoshi, and the overlord in Japan was extremely displeased. He raged at his advisors as he ordered yet another 45,000 Japanese soldiers shipped across the Korean strait. The reinforcements landed in the southeast of Korea where they linked up with 50,000 veterans and the combined force set out to take the Korean-held Chinju Castle in the middle of southern Korea before the Chinese arrived and made the capture of Chinju all but impossible. Hideyoshi sent 90,000 men to take Chinju, the largest concentration of Japanese forces during the entire conflict. Against this massive force, the Koreans had just 60,000 ill-trained men to defend the walls of the fortification. Now, Chinju Fort lies along a river on its southern side, but the remaining three sides face landward. The Japanese formed their massive army in two rings around the city. The first ring mirrored the landward walls of the city and comprised 60,000 men. The second ring of Japanese were 30,000 strong, and their job was to block any Chinese reinforcements from reaching the city, but they could also assist the attackers at a decisive moment if they were needed. Another smaller group of Japanese blocked the southern approach to Shinju in case reinforcements attempted to reach the garrison from that direction. The Japanese began to systematically work on liquidating the Shinju garrison. The first thing they did was drain the moat. Next, they filled the now dry ditch with rocks and earth all the while protecting themselves with shields of bamboo bundles. Afterwards, they erected a static siege tower. Meanwhile, the Koreans responded with gunfire, fire arrows, and cannonballs, which shattered the bamboo shields. Stephen Turnbull details the next part of the attack. Quote, it was now time for a major Japanese assault to be led by Kikoshoa tortoise-shell wagons, which were stout wooden contraptions on wheels that were pushed up to the edge of the wall. Under the protection of the Kikishoa's boarded roofs, foundation stones would be dug out of the ramparts, leading to the collapse of a section. The burning of the wagons, which was done by the simple expedient of dropping bundles of combustible material soaked in oil or fat from the battlements, drove off this assault. In response, the Japanese commander ordered other kakashowa to be prepared and had their roofs covered with ox hides for fire prevention, quote. Two days later, the tortoise wagons resumed the attack, and aided by a storm, the northwest wall began to slide away. The samurai excitedly jostled with one another like children at an ice cream party, all of them eager to be the first through the disintegrating wall. By this time, the Koreans were short of weapons... And all they had left to resist the onrushing samurai were sharpened sticks. If the samurai made it over the walls, there was little chance the Koreans could successfully resist them. However, there was one Korean, a general named So Yi Wan, who still had a sword, and he opened up the front gate to personally engage a prominent samurai named Okamoto Ganojo in single combat. The two noblemen struggled with one another twice. After the second struggle, Okamoto pursued his prey into the courtyard of the castle where he found So resting on a tree stump. A contemporary recalls what happened next. Pausing for breath, he unsheathed his sword, leapt upon him, and struck off his head. To one side of this place was the edge of a steep cliff, and So's head tumbled down into the grass beneath. As it was unthinkable for a noble samurai to lose such a prized head, a search was made of the river bank. Okamoto's two soldiers searched fog and located So's head among the grass and sent it for identification. Some men who had been captured alive said that this was indeed General So's head, and Hiroji rejoiced greatly. It was pickled in salt, and with Okamoto Ganojo in attendance, it was sent to Japan." So they're pickling human heads in the battle I'm describing. At this point, the Korean commander, realizing all was lost, killed himself. Many Koreans emulated the actions of their leader. Thousands committed suicide. Here's how contemporaries describe the end of the battle at Chinju, Quote, All the Chinese were terrified of our Japanese blades and jumped into the river, but we pulled them out and cut off their heads. Kikawa's men on the far bank of the Nam took a particular active part in pulling escapees out of the river and beheading them. Some Japanese accounts note the taking of 20,000 heads at Shinju. Korean records claim 60,000 deaths in both Figures imply a massacre of soldiers and non combatants alike. One contemporary document claims that fifteen thousand three hundred heads were taken, and that the total number of deaths was twenty five thousand, of whom the balance fell from the cliffs and were drowned in the water. End quote That night, the Nam River literally flowed red with the blood of the victims. It would be the last major battle in the conflict for four years. After the victory at Shinju, the Japanese began to reinforce their fortresses along the Japan-facing coast of southern Korea. Many Japanese troops left Korea, and there were few major campaigns over the next four years. But there was a continuous Japanese presence dug in like a cavity in a tooth. For years, the Japanese and Koreans engaged in fruitless diplomatic talks. When the talks finally broke down in 1597, a second invasion of merciless samurai was inevitable. But that's next month's podcast. And that's another one in the books for me. I want to remind you all to join us next month for the last installment in this series on the M. War. After that, we've got a very special show that's been a long time coming. I'm extremely excited about it, and I know you're going to love it. That's coming in two months. But now I've got to address a couple of letters you guys have been writing to me, asking me to comment on the statues being taken down all over the Western world. I have a few things to say since you guys keep bugging me about it. First, you seem determined to get me in trouble with the social media czars, but that's all right. Second, don't ask for my opinion. Ask King Agesilaus of Sparta. One day the king was meeting with some minor nobles from the city of Rhodes when they asked the king, Why does the city of Sparta lack fortified walls? I mean, what's with that? Quick as a man can survey the figure of a woman came the king's response. He pointed to the Spartans in their battle armor all around him and said, These are the walls of Sparta. What does this quote have to do with the statues coming down? It has everything to do with it. How many of your families have fallen, been toppled and rolled into the Thames by your lust? How much more important is a living family than a granite statue? Nobody complained or wrote emails when the family was broken apart, and yet now that lifeless statues are knocked over, you complain, you write emails. Friends there is a statue inside a man that can never be knocked over. That's what King Agesilaus knew when he responded that the Spartans were the walls of his city. How many men have died from fentanyl overdoses? How many women hoard themselves for sweat-stained money in order to fill their veins with narcotics? How many American children cry on Christmas morning because their drug-addicted mother has been used by multiple men, and the child is hungry, and there are no presents? While ten miles away, the children of the rich are literally bored by the sheer abundance of the presents they'll open on christmas morning how many fetuses have been deconstructed and rolled into petri dishes in clinics across these nations and you write to me about statues how many of you have defiled your countrymen's wives and daughters how many of you have broken sacred vows how many of you have stretched thin the level of trust in your own nations you have a lot of fun It's fun to take fentanyl. It's fun to sleep with mistresses. It is fun to break vows. But now the piper wants his payment. Now the children run the classroom. Now the delinquents run the streets. I tell you, friend, once you become worthy of your own statue, then the statues of your presidents and your explorers can never be knocked over. Once you become the walls of Sparta, the city is more secure than it ever was, though you build a wall 100 feet tall and twice as wide. I've just laid a bitter truth on you today. There are few who have the character to lay this truth on you. I was at Chick-fil-A this month, picking up dinner for my children when I was propositioned by a girl who looked about 15. It was freezing outside and I can remember the goosebumps on her pale auburn-haired arms. I remember her bored eyes without real interest in what she was saying to me and the small bosom playing peekaboo from the edge of her neon pink tank top. She had two friends standing at the corner with her dressed in the same manner, young Invulnerable. They've had intercourse with countless strangers since that night. Friends, I point to them and I say, here are the living statues of America. Here are the wives and daughters of the West. These young girls embody your values. They didn't know who the people on the statues were when they were toppled over. Here are the maidens of the West. There is a statue that can never be toppled over. There is a statue that stands taller than the rest. It's a statue inside your heart. It's a statue that can heal the West.